0: All right, great to be together, great to have the opportunity to open God's Word, whether that would be here in the live auditorium, or in Classic, or on the Moon Campus, or online, maybe in your living room, or across an ocean, wherever this is finding you, and we know it finds people in all those sorts of places, welcome to you. All right, as we get started, a question, and it's this, in what are you willing to put your confidence all right. What makes sense to you when you think about, I could put my confidence in that? Now you have probably never have made a list, but there's probably a line that you would draw in your mind that, that this is something I'd have confidence in and this is something that I probably wouldn't. What would it be? Maybe for you it would be because something is a proven commodity or something. That is, that is why you would put your confidence in that. Or maybe because it comes from a certain source. I certainly have confidence in anything that comes from orums right? Because, because it's delicious. It's always going to be delicious, and you just know that that's the case. But here's the thing. Sometimes we actually put our confidence in something that doesn't make sense to do that, because it wouldn't have been across the line that we would have otherwise decided. And you can tell that because of the way that some people act and the way that some people live their lives. For instance, there are lots of people that every day cross this bridge, is that something that you'd have confidence in doing day after day? I'd, I don't think that I would. Or, uh, or here's, a, here's another look. Um, how Would you have confidence in going on this bus trip? Just look at that corner that they are about to take. And this is a bus trip. Here's this guy. He's leaning out of the window. I think he's about to throw up. But um, I, he, he's looking, that, that doesn't look like that bus is going to make it around there. But some, a lot of people apparently have confidence because this is a bus trip that they are on, on this road. Or how about this swimming pool? That's what this is. This is a real thing. It's in London. This is a swimming pool that is suspended between two buildings, 125 feet off the ground. It's called the Sky Pool. Again, it's there in London. How many of you, as you can see, it's completely transparent, you can see right through it, right onto, how many of you would want to go swimming in the sky pool? All right, there's like five of you, all right? Now, personally, I've got a lot of confidence when it comes to swimming in this pool. I've got a lot of confidence that the people who do it are nuts That's that's where my confidence lies in this, all right? So in what are you willing to place and to put your confidence is a question that we are asking, and it comes up as we return to our study through the book of Romans. We have seen that our, our author, the Apostle Paul, has been seeking to help people toward an understanding of righteousness. And what is that, and what does it look like, and how is it lived out? and unrighteousness, and the gospel, and grace. He wants us to understand, but what he is after is not just that we would understand it in the sense of knowledge, but that we would understand it in the sense of applying it to our lives so that it might transform who we are and how we live. But the problem is this, that not everybody was getting it. Not everybody was understanding in the church there in Rome that he is writing to, and so that's what he goes around in this part of chapter 2 to help them to understand exactly what this would look like and helping to show them some of the ways that they thought that they were moving themselves forward in this regard, but they really weren't, where they were coming up short. And he writes to help them to understand where they're coming up short so that they wouldn't just go blissfully down this road as they were, thinking that they were doing great when they really weren't. And he writes this also to help us to understand what would be the right path then to get on. And that's what we find this passage to be about in Romans chapter 2. And I invite you to open up if you haven't already, maybe in your journals or maybe in a Bible, whatever you have. Romans chapter 2 and verses 17 to 29 are where we're going to be today. This is right at the bottom of page 12 in your journal if you want to look at it there. This is a very helpful passage for us today because it is also possible that we are putting our confidence in things spiritually that aren't going to pay off for us either, But we've been going down this road, and it seems like it's going to fulfill us. And it seems like it's the thing that is going to be real because we see it in other people and in other places. That's what they're doing, and so it must be good for me. But the problem is if we follow that path, we're going to end up in a dead end. And Paul wants us to understand that, and so this is something that we need to dig into. If you've ever wondered about the health and vitality of your spiritual life, this is a vital passage for you. I've had times, certainly, when I've wondered about the health and the vitality of my spiritual life, and this passage is something that is going to, I believe, help all of us to do some evaluation and hopefully get ourselves on a better path, perhaps, than what it is that we have been on. So we're going to be asking this question as we make our way along. or thinking about where to place your confidence. That's what we're calling this today, where to place your confidence confidence. And as we get started in verse 17, Paul is primarily addressing a group of Jewish individuals who are there in and around the church in Rome. Many of them are believers. Some of them are just hanging around, and they're trying to figure it all out, and they don't completely have it figured out, and Paul's going to write to make that as plain as he possibly can for them, and as he writes to them, he addresses the first of many places that people put their confidence, and people that he's writing to, he saw very much were putting their confidence in that place, and it is this. It's in relying on position. Relying on position is where it gets started. Paul doesn't waste any time sort of turning up the temperature on these people that he is writing to. He begins in verse 17 by saying, but if you call yourself a Jew... And here's what he's getting at. The ancient Jews were very proud of the position that they were in. They believed that they had a special status with God, and in one sense they did, because it was their ancient ancestor Abraham who God approached, and he said he's going to make a great nation out of him and out of his followers, and that they were going to be the chosen people of God. Now, they didn't do all that well in following through on that, but that doesn't take anything away from the way that these Jews are relying on their special spiritual status. They were named the chosen people of God, and so they sort of wore that, you know, with their thumb under their armpit kind of thing. This is who I am. This is who we are. And this is Paul himself. Paul was a Jew, and we can see in his early life that he, he found such great pride in, in his position And that ended up leading him down a bad path, but it gives him a special vantage point from which to understand and see and to communicate with the people that he is writing to there in Rome. But it wasn't just that they called themselves Jews and took the pride in that, or Israelites and took pride in that, though they did, but it went beyond that. There are other characteristics that he brings up here where he identifies this is how you see yourself, and he's just wanting to to lay it out there so that they might be confronted with the truth of what is going on here. So Paul highlights some of these as he goes on, And, and I just want to show these to you. For the next few verses, I just want to put basically the little phrases on the screen, and it's all things that Paul is trying to tell them. So starting in then again there in verse 17, he says, But if you, but if you, talking about the Jews there, if you call yourself a Jew, that's where he starts here. This is more than just an ethnic description. This The, the context here suggests that this is pride, that they're saying, yeah, we're Jews, in that we're better than you, you Gentiles, you other people. Paul says, if you call yourself or put... You know, put yourself on that sort of pedestal, call yourself a Jew, and rely on the law as a means to demonstrate your personal superiority because that was given to your ancestor Moses and it wasn't given to those Gentile folks. And boast in God as a reminder to everybody else that you're his chosen people and know his will and approve what is excellent, making yourself the ones who determine the worthiness of yourself or other people. You seem to believe that that's something that is in your camp or your court to make that determination, and are instructed from the law, taking pride in the fact that, again, it's yours and that you know it better than other people do, and are sure that you are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, believing that you're the sole possessor of truth, And he goes on and on and on and he says all of these little things and he's sort of calling them out. They don't sound bad on the surface and there was nothing wrong with being a Jew and there was nothing wrong certainly with knowing what the law contains. Those are good things. He says that the problem comes in the status that they believe that it gives them in this sort of superior spiritual understanding or belief that they had about themselves as they were comparing themselves with other people. And he says to see all of that, he's looking at it, and he says, look at all those things. He wants them to identify it. And in verse 20, in case we've missed what's going on, he goes on with a little bit of a bite here. And also he says, you're consider yourself an instructor of the foolish, Believing yourself to be, to be wise and having greater wisdom than anybody else. And a teacher of children. You're above everyone. Everybody else is somewhere below you like a child might be. Having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. And here's the gut punch. You then who teach others, do, not, do you not teach yourself? He asks that as a question, but he's not wondering about anything. He's offering this as an accusation. He's saying, no, you don't teach yourself. You're happy to call out other people. You're happy to put yourself on a pedestal, but you don't recognize where you yourself are falling short. You don't recognize that you're really very much in the same boat as everybody else is because you're so busy patting yourself on the back and feeling this sense of ethnic pride in who you are and what you believe is true about you. Paul's just laying into them here. Paul knows that they're guilty of arrogantly elevating their own status over other people. And he says there's plenty for his Jewish readers to evaluate in themselves. He even points out some representative areas. He says, you know, you're not considering what's going on in you. So he says, let me give you a couple. At the end of verse 21 there, he says, while you preach against stealing, do you steal? Again, he's asking it as a question, but the answer is already suggested in the way the question is asked. Yes. You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. He's speaking to the double standard that we looked at last week, where it's so easy or becomes easier to dismiss our own sin if we simply call out the sin of somebody else. Because you look so bad in your sin, I can kind of ignore my need to dig into who I am and the way that I'm living and, and the things that are true about me. If I can just deflect that, I can save myself the embarrassment of looking Internally is what he's talking about here. But here's the thing: God doesn't grade on a curve. He's talking about sin here. God doesn't grade on. A... You are not going to stand before God in judgment one day and ha- and hear Him say to you, "You know what? It's not a good thing that you were a thief or an idolater, but at least you weren't a Browns fan." I mean, he's not going to say that, right? Even if all of those things are sins, he's not going to say that because he doesn't judge on a curve. That's the point. Judging the sin of others does not justify your sin, or it does not justify you before God at all. What it does is tarnish God's reputation. Look at verse 24. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That is such a bold, strong statement. He's just calling them out. In other words, because they tried to deflect their guilt and wouldn't own it, it caused other people who are looking on to reject God. Just think of the influence that one who is proclaiming a connection to God has over others who are looking on. And of course, it's not just ancient Jews, is it? It's us. It's us that this should be penetrating. What is it about your life and what does it communicate to those who are around you? Are people who are around you more interested in, fo- in finding God and following after Him because of what they see in you, or do they see an inconsistency? Do they see something that would instead lead them to- in the direction of rejecting God? You know, saying, if, if that's really what it's about, well, well, I've got that, or It's not that significant a thing that would benefit me. But here's the thing, just as your life can lead people away from Jesus, good news, your life can lead people to Jesus, toward Him. You can be that sort of winsome witness. Does that happen because other people look at my life and they're just so impressed, they're like, I want to follow. No, it doesn't happen because of that. It can't happen because of that, because you cannot sustain in yourself that model, that presents itself before everybody else, that you've got it all together. You cannot sustain that. It's impossible. It's not in you. The Jews thought that they could do that. What it led them to was self-righteousness, which is the very thing that ended up pushing people away from, or pushing themselves away from Jesus, instead of being drawn near. What you can offer is, that is transformational is a humble spirit that admits to personal weakness and points to a powerful Savior. That's what you have to offer. In fact, that's all you have to offer. What you have to offer is the gospel. But the gospel will never come into focus for others if you just share it through the lens of your own worthiness. Because as long as it's being shared in the context of I'm worthy, then it's not the gospel. You're communicating something else. You're communicating a follow after me because I've got it together, and that's where you're going to let them down. Because here's the thing. Here's the thing. The gospel is only hope for those who have no other. The gospel is only hope for those who have no other, no other hope. We're at the end of our rope. There's nothing else that I can do. There's nothing else that I can rely on. And that's where the gospel does its work, when we get ourselves to that place. That's why the Jews were in a world of hurt. They were relying on their position. They were relying on something else that was external, to the point where they never felt a need for the gospel because they had it together all in and of themselves. Of course, this wasn't just a first century problem or a Jewish problem. We all have the capacity to, to have our own counterfeit saviors, the things that we bring to the table, the things that we pile on to make us feel better. There are other paths that we think can get us to God and put us in right standing with him. So back to Paul's list in verse 17, we don't call ourselves Jews like he starts out but we may very well call ourselves a Christian and believe that there are certain privileges afforded to me simply because I I own that title, because I acknowledge that that's who I am, or we rely on the amount of knowledge that we have about the Bible or or the good things that we do or how we might look better than another person. Or if, if we really get down to the end of our rope, we might actually stoop to doing what Paul is accusing them of doing, which is looking at somebody else and pointing out their sin so that I'd feel better in mine. Then there are any of a number of things that we might try in this regard, but here's the thing. As we do that, we create layers of spiritual insulation that actually keep me from looking at the hard truth of what's going on in my own heart. Because I can look at this and I feel good about myself with God because I've got that external Or that position that I hold, and this one, and this one, and I'm better than them, and my sin isn't as significant as theirs, and there's all these layers of insulation that keep me from ever having to do an examination of my own heart. And until I get to the place where I do an examination of my own heart, I am in no relationship with Jesus. I'm pushing myself away, I am pushing Him away, thinking all the while that I'm drawing near. It's the ultimate deception. And Satan loves to work that in our lives. It's so hard to get to the place where we willingly, willingly admit to our need and our helplessness. But here's the thing. Helplessness is a door that you have to walk through if you're gonna find your way to Jesus. Helplessness is a door you have to walk through if you're gonna find your way to Jesus. So I want you to say this with me, okay? On three. One, two, three. I'm helpless, all right? Now I want you to say it with a little bit of conviction. Ready? One, two, three. I'm helpless. And now one more time, full-throated, one, two, three, I'm helpless. That's absolutely true, but that is so hard for us to say because we don't like to admit that I need to humble myself in any regard, that I don't need to bow my knee before anybody else But we do, and that's actually one of the reasons why so many religions become so popular or have so many followers, because what religion does is it allows you to find something to appease your conscience in following after whatever those rules happen to be that are a part of that religion. While at the same time, I can hold on to my pride. I can hold on to it because I can say, I'm the one who is earning my way. I am the one who is earning my reputation. I am the one who is providing this for myself so I can appease my conscience in following after that religious system, whatever that is, whatever that requires of me, while at the same time not ever having to bow my knee and humble myself before the one true God through whom stands on the other side of the door marked helplessness because as long as we say, I'm worthy enough to avoid that door, we're not putting ourselves at the place where we can receive the grace that's offered on the other side. That's the truth of the matter. That's what's going on here and what we need to come to genuinely understand if we're going to figure all of this out. So relying on position is going to leave you Empty. Then, as Paul goes on here, he gives us something else to consider. Another possibility where people might put their confidence is in resting in custom. In resting in custom. One of the outward signs of the covenant that God made with Abraham when God made him the father of the nation of Israel was circumcision. It's an outward demonstration of the fact that these people are ones who have been set apart. And so, according to the law, what every Jewish male did is that they were circumcised. It marked them in such a way that said that they belonged to God. However, external appearances don't necessarily reveal what's on the inside. External appearances don't necessarily reveal to you what's the real thing that is happening on the inside. Let me give you a couple of examples from other parts of our world. For instance, here's a cream. It looks like there's a good amount of cream that you're going to get in this bottle or in this tin or whatever it is that's inside until, of course, you open up the box. And then you can see what's really there. You see the external, exper- or the external appearance doesn't necessarily reveal what's going on on the inside. Or here's, here's another circumstance, this, uh, this delicious-looking panda lollipop. What kid isn't going to want that until you unwrap it yeah that's 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 awful it just shouldn't be that way it's beyond words is is what that is that's so disappointing as it would be if you open up this box of crayons yeah 64 crayon colors and they're all orange yeah all right? That's very, very disappointing. see, external appearances don't always reveal what's going on on the inside, and that's Paul's point. Beginning in verse 25, Paul is pointing out that not everything is as it seems. He writes this. Look at verse 25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. That sounds like a riddle, doesn't it? It's like, what in the world is he saying? It sounds very complicated, but it's not that complicated. If you just would stop and kind of take it one phrase at a time, I think you'd figure it out. Let me help you with that. Circumcision was an indication that a person was devoted to God and committed to keeping the law in everything that they did, to fully follow the law, everything that it says. But Paul is saying that if a person has that sign of a full commitment, but their life isn't fully committed, then the sign is worthless. It means nothing. And on the flip side, he also indicates that if a person doesn't have that sign, that external sign, but they are obedient in their life, that the obedience overwhelms the sign, that that's more important. That's what Paul's trying to get at here, that there is a greater value than the sign itself, and that's what's going on internally. For the Jews Paul is writing to, and many others in the ancient world, they were resting on this custom of circumcision, and they believed because they were, and if they bore that outward sign that The rest of life didn't really matter what they did, how they lived. They had the sign, and because of that, they were in a right standing with God, and they always would be. And so they didn't need to concern themselves about anything else. As long as they had the sign, they were covered. It was taken care of. There's nothing to worry about. And they were relying on that position that they had, while all the while, all it is doing is separating them further and further and further from God. And, And Paul's like, I want you to know this. I want you to understand this. You're so blinded. And I want to help you wake up is what he is saying here. And we need to have open eyes. We need to wake up as well because we're also tempted by custom, by externals. For us, it's, it's not probably going to be circumcision, but it's probably going to be maybe something like baptism. Baptism is also an external sign of an internal reality that supposedly has taken place. But it's possible that you would be baptized and live a life that doesn't you know, suggest that the, the change that you were speaking to when you were baptized is actually something that's carried forward in your life. You just go your own way, but still we have this sort of sense, or you may have this sort of sense, that as long as I was baptized, everything's cool. Everything's good. I took that big step with God, so God must be pleased. One of the places that we might go or you might rest in serving on enough committees or holding to the right doctrine. For some, having strong convictions on certain doctrines is the thing that they're putting their trust in. They're like, well, God must feel as strongly about this particular circumstance as I do, and so if I'm feeling this strong, then I know that he's going to be pleased with me, and because I hold to this theological position, then God's good with me, and everything's going to be just fine. And we walk our way down these paths. We create these externals, or we rely on customs in order to give us a sense that we are in good position. But here's the thing, you see, it's, it's possible to trust in Christianity rather than Christ. Sometimes that's referred to as dead orthodoxy. You have orthodox beliefs or positions, but you don't live them. They don't translate into anything life-giving inside. It's dead orthodoxy. Tim Keller warns that many people, he says, give intellectual assent to the gospel and can recite the facts of the cross and resurrection, but they've never been transformed. A lot of people are resting in custom rather than in substance. Of those, Jesus wrote this. I think we've got it here. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? It goes on. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus is saying it's possible to look good on the outside. Even carry on ministry. If that verse is, verses are to be believed, but just be empty inside. Lifeless inside. That is so penetrating. Paul and Jesus are both trying to guard us from placing our confidence in the wrong place. As we've talked about before, what Paul is doing here, what he is saying here, is speaking plainly. Paul speaks plainly, not to make us afraid, but to make us aware. To wake us up, to what might be going on in our spirit and our heart and in our soul that makes us feel like we're going in a good direction but all we're doing is resting in custom and relying on position and both are deadly. Both are deceptive because they leave us thinking that everything is going well. Everything is right with God when really we're walking away from Him as we hold the position, as we feel that sense of pride spiritually. So then what are we supposed to do? If we shouldn't be placing our confidence in position or in custom, is there something better? Well, Paul goes on and he helps us to understand that. The essential step is found in renewing the right heart. Renewing a right heart. Not in relying on position or resting in custom, but in renewing a right heart. Verse 28, take a look at it. For no one is a Jew... Or you might just insert there a follower of God, or no one is a follower of Jesus, or no one is a Christian, just to put it in the context of he's talking about people who are trying to follow after God. No one is a Christian who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew, a Christian, a follower, is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. God. Paul is working very hard in this passage to make sure we understand that there is no justification, no salvation to be found in things that are merely external. What is necessary is a matter of the heart, and the thing that enervates that, he says here, is the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit who does a work in us, who comes to fill us in the moment when we humble ourselves before God when we give ourselves over to Him and we establish that relationship together with Him. And he says it's not by a letter, not by the law, not by the letter of the law, He says that's not where it's found. And as a result, he says there's praise that comes his way. But that doesn't come from a man who is looking on him and is just impressed by all those externals and, and applauds him and lifts him up. He says that's not where it comes from. He says this guy's praise is actually coming from God. Why? Because God looks on the heart and he sees that there is genuine faith that is going on there in this man's heart. Now, Paul articulates this very, very well for us, but it's actually not original to him. This is an idea that comes up all the way back in the Old Testament. It comes up in the law where it's spoken of, where God is trying to communicate this idea that it's not through the externals. Even as He gives circumcision to the people through the law, at the same time, He says what's really important is a different circumcision. What's really important is what's going on inside, what's happening in our hearts Maybe you've never seen this verse before, but in Deuteronomy chapter 30, he writes there, God gives us this through Moses' pen, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. It's beautiful. We will never be able to find ourselves in a right relationship with God apart from renewing a right heart. There is nothing else that can sustain. There is nothing else that can provide for us. Nothing. So where it's got to start. It's a matter of devoting our heart to Jesus, which means to love him first and foremost and put nothing else before him. Do you notice earlier when he was talking about idols and how the Jews were placing idols and some of those idols were things like circumcision? Idols for us might be things like baptism or it might be things like family or career or anything at all that would get in the way of our relationship with God and having it be a devoted servant to, to master sort of relationship with nothing else in between that sidetracks or, us uh, or distracts us or becomes an idol for us. And we need to examine our own mind and our heart and, and determine is that where I am? Later on in Romans, and we'll study this when we get to this chapter, but it's worth pulling forward for now. Uh, Paul writes this If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, is declared righteous, we defined that as last week, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Paul says that salvation is an act of belief in the person and work of God, of Jesus, and the confession of that belief. That's where the substance is for us, We need to understand that. There will be outward demonstrations of that going on inside. Absolutely there will be. There should be. Last week we talked about the fact that we're going to be judged one day based on the works that have flown, that have grown forward from where our heart has been. But if we ever allow the externals to be the essence of what our relationship is or the way that we engage in our spiritual life and that it overshadows the relationship that is going on in our own heart, then that should be a big flag for us, a flag that perhaps we have walked away from our first love, from our love of Christ. Or maybe it would suggest to us that we have been pursuing the wrong things or that we have never really bowed our knee before Jesus in the first place. And what Paul has to say to us here is very penetrating, and he is giving us both barrels so that we might understand this, because we don't want to get to the end of life and recognize that what I thought was such dynamic service all the way along was really empty. It was really just me promoting myself and my own abilities and and lasting or, or pursuing things that weren't going to last, that never could, but bowing our knees instead. Paul wants us to be sure that we're not exchanging what might look real for what is real. For what looks real, for what is real. What is real in the place that we can put our confidence, must put our confidence, our hearts completely surrendered to Jesus completely surrendered not just doing the good things and resting in those like Jesus said people were prophesying in his name but weren't in fellowship with him so I just invite you as I invite myself to do an internal examination and where does this land for us what are the things that you might be resting in? What are the things that you look to and you say, "I feel confident in my standing with God because of that because I do that, because I go there, because I serve this way, because I went through these waters." So you do this examination. Where's the where's where's it balanced out in your life? Can you genuinely and honestly say that there is that primary relationship between you and Jesus? that is the centerpiece of it all rather than resting something on the outside. This can be hard for us because many of us grew up in contexts where that's what we were told to do, encouraged to do, challenged to do, told that that's where the essence really is found. But what the scriptures tell us again and again and again, and Paul is right out in front in all of it, including in this passage, is that it's not found in externals. It's found in what's going on Between you and Jesus, in your heart. What's that for you? Where are you placing your confidence? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, such a penetrating text that this is. Something that I believe wakes all of us up, or I pray wakes all of us up to ask the questions, what are the things that as I look on, or as I were to perhaps stand before you and you were to ask, give me the reasons. What is it that would invite you into heaven? Lord, may our response not be, as we think of it right now, the first things that I did this or I went there or I was better than that person or, or I served in this way on this committee and I was baptized. And Lord, may it be, That we have confessed with our mouth and believed in our heart that Jesus is Lord of all, and that we have humbled ourselves and walked through the door of helplessness. Lord, we can get there no other way, but as we walk through that door, as we bow our knee in humility to you, you're anxious to respond. and to welcome us in and to make us your child. Father, today I pray for anyone here who's uncertain about their standing with you. Maybe there have been things that have gone on throughout their life, maybe because of the way that they were raised that have given a false sense of security. Lord, thank you for Paul that he just lays that bare so we might recognize what is necessary is a confession of faith in you, a transformation of our heart. So Lord, for anyone who's wondering or is certain that that's not where they are, Lord, right now I pray that you would minister to us as we've been asking throughout this service that you would reveal yourself and that we would have a humble enough heart to respond. So Lord, for anyone right now in need of stopping the reliance on position, or on custom, or tradition. But I just pray that you'd speak to us. And friend, if you're that person who would like to settle that matter and confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, really, that's all you need to pray. But you might pray it something like this, dear God. I acknowledge that I've been resting in the wrong things I desire to put all of my trust fully, completely, and only in the work of Jesus on the cross. Confess my sin. Give me your forgiveness. I receive you today as Savior, putting all my trust in you. Not in myself and what I've done or can do, but all in you. Lord, be my Savior. And that's it. That's it. That's what that's what God asks of us. And I would encourage you, as you've believed in your heart, that you would also confess with your mouth before you leave, maybe to a person that you came with who invited you, or to me, or to someone else that you know, of this decision that you have made. And if you would also confess it with your pen. On the, on the connect card so that we would know, so that you can declare boldly, I'm not resting in myself and my accomplishments. I'm resting fully and completely in Jesus, who's one who's helpless, but made whole. Father, thank you for speaking to us through Paul. Thank you that he's concerned enough to speak boldly, not that we'd be afraid, but that we'd be aware. Lord, I pray that we would continue to confess you with our mouth and celebrate the relationship that we have with you in our heart as we move forward, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.